Welcome to Breaking the Mold, exploring the people and issues fueling business today. It's business time. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. And now, let's break the mold. Hello and welcome back to Breaking the Mold and to Lucky Episode Number 7. I'm Evan Roth, your host of Breaking the Mold, joined today by guest host, brother of Evan Roth, Daniel Roth. Hello. Great to be back. Thank you for having me. Uh, Dan, it's great to have you here. Most um, most pundits didn't think that uh, Breaking the Mold would get to the seventh episode. Um, all those reviews that we had, both in mainstream and new media, thought that you know you couldn't do any better than the first six. So no, it's true. High expectations the, here. The social media buzz was really deafening. People yeah. saying six, I can see, but how do you get to that? mythical seven. Well, I think because for most, they, you know, there's a buildup, right? I mean, we sort of hit the ground with kind of the, the, the best six podcast episodes ever created. Mm-hmm. And then how do you do better than that? No. And I think that it's, I mean, this is a little bit inside baseball, but you yeah. and I had many talks, many dinners, conversations of whether we should even try for seven. Yeah. And mm-hmm. in the end, what we decided was either we'll try for seven or we'll consider this and all future episodes to be the sixth episode. <laughs> <laughs> Six A B C Q Q. Exactly. So Dan, we have a special show today for our second sixth episode. Uh, it is Jane Friedman will be joining us here for the interview portion. She is uh, amazing uh, in her professional career. She's a wonderful storyteller, entertaining, one of those people that you just enjoy spending time with. And we'll get a chance to kind of talk her through both her own career as well as the evolution of the book publishing industry. Um, But we are going to start off, as usual, with a little banter between Danny and I talking about a story of the day. Um, And uh, it's one that marries uh, the book industry along with kind of the technical aspects of finance, and that is Michael Lewis's new book on high-frequency trading. Just the term high-frequency trading has probably made a lot of people turn the show off right now. You know, it's amazing, though, that the fact that Michael Lewis – and this has been going on. High-frequency trading is not anything new. Right. And But it takes Michael Lewis to write a book to get everyone to suddenly start focusing on it. He, he This is his fourth book on finance. And, and you will find people who have no interest in ever working on Wall Street, interest in that just as a, as a topic to learn about. They all know Michael Lewis. They'll talk about Liar's Poker. I think he's a special character. Absolutely. And his ability to take real-life stories and yeah. be able to, you know, apply them to some, you know, highly complex, sophisticated, you know, notions of whether it's statistics in baseball or, you know, how a stock gets traded. No, it's fascinating. This doesn't have to do with the actual the, – the, the topic of the high-frequency trading. But what Michael Lewis is great at – is finding someone to hang a story on that you've never heard of before. This mm-hmm. is more how how he performs what he performs. He goes in, he found Billy Bean, he, but he does it in such a spectacular way. And he tells a very complicated story through these very relatable or at least um, people you have some kind of sympathy with. Right. Now, I do wonder whether if you met those people in real life, whether – you, you you sort of you demystify what he's created in of them in the book. When you cover Michael Orr, a six foot nine, three hundred seventy five pound, you know, black eighteen year old living in a white family in Tennessee, it's hard to imagine that 
what he brought out in Michael is something that you could in a one-on-one interview with. Right. And I actually, I kind of wonder the same. There's been a lot of crit- critique about this most recent book from people on my side of, you know, sort of the world and talking in finance is that this book is fiction, right? That it's a, it's a aggrandizement of the way in which things really work. But he found a character. He found a guy that actually represented that and then he just blew him up. Yep. Um, I think that people had the same criticism when The Big Short came out yeah, of right. whether he was giving too much credence to certain people who were packaging home mortgages mm-hmm. and making bets against him. When his book came out, everyone started then following the the trail. Right. And you had, you know, uh, uh, Business Week and Portfolio and all these other magazines. This was when I was at Portfolio and we were doing this. Mm-hmm. The um, You say, all right, this is the topic. This is the topic of the day. We're going to go after it. And then you start discovering, well, maybe who, maybe who Michael's cited as the most important characters weren't, but there are these other characters who are doing shady things or are yeah. doing great things. And then it just becomes the topic. So, so, so that's the same thing that's happening now. Exactly. God, he's amazing. That, that in, he's got a... You know, what followed kind of the 60 Minutes report, which happened on Sunday night, is that there's now been at least there's been exposure that the uh, Fed is actually opening an SEC investi- – they're opening an investigation um, into high-frequency trading, that there's a company called Virtu, which was set to go public, um, that is a high-frequency trader who's had to delay their IPO as a result of it. Like it, all of this sort of just spirals that because he's just surfaced these issues that most people who are already kind of aware of it, it's like, yes, yeah, so what? It's sabermetrics. I know I've been following baseball stats forever. But again, he, back to the original point, he just knows how to write in a way that gets people attention. Exactly. Yep. Okay, so high-frequency trading can devolve into lots of acronyms very quickly. So maybe the best thing to do is try to analogize it a little bit, okay? Generally speaking, what he's accusing the industry of is something called front-running, all right? Front-running would be the... Example would be, let's say that um, it's the Friday after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, and there's all these sales that are offered at a shopping mall. And there's a special line for um, anyone who's shopping just for buying bikes. There's somebody inside that retail store, works at the store, who says, I see all these people lined up ready as soon as the bell you know, whistles to come in and they're going to be buying all these bikes. I'm going to buy it first. And the price is going to fluctuate based on supply and demand. So he's buying it a fraction, a split second. The salesperson inside is buying a split second before the doors open. He opens it. Everybody rushes in. The first ones get the best price, and the prices just keep growing up and up and up and up from there. And now what does the guy do who owns the first bike? He then sells it to somebody much later, and he collects the spread. He collects the difference. Same thing happens on the reverse, right? Those same people all come back, and they got to return the bike because they don't want it anymore. He sees the line. The salesperson sees the line outside signing up for the return. He sells it first before everybody comes in and dumps it, and the price goes down. All of that is done not with any individual, any human kind of interaction. It's all done through systems and— Machine to machine, sure. Right. So that's— rigged, right? As long as you know that there's a line forming, right? And and the way that you know that a line is forming is, in my view, is not something that is you're taking any kind of insider information short, you know, it's simply knowing that like if you're going to trade in the stock market and you're an individual investor, you're up against some really sharp people and those sharp people who program computers who take advantage of these little spreads between, you know, what you're going to be buying at and what they're going to be buying at. And that's no different than going to Vegas and knowing that the house is 
rigged to beat you, right? I mean, I, I don't want to say rigged isn't the right term to use it, but it's buyer beware. This is not the kind of area where, you know, if you think you're a sharp trader, and that's as true as it was when you were a day trader in the late 90s as it is today if you're trying to buy 100 shares of IBM, you better go in with your eyes open and using a sophisticated approach, like using limit orders instead of market orders. But isn't, isn't his argument that it hurts the little guy by if you are invested with Fidelity and Fidelity is getting front run. And so you're not getting the best price when your mutual fund is buying is buying shares and they are not getting the best price because these high-frequency traders are able to get in just beforehand and sell it a little bit higher. Then he is, but the blame then needs to be on Fidelity. Exactly. So that's my question is how does this – when typically when these kind of um, – uh, discrepancies exist, especially in financial markets, they disappear mm-hmm. because other smart people realize they exist and then they work against them. Right. So is this a temporary, is it possible that what we're seeing are just some people who are really great at creating these algorithms who co-located on the um, exchange sites and are benefiting by the speed art, have a temporary advantage that goes away as other people learn their game, that just by Michael Lewis explaining the game, the game disappears? Uh, it It is absolutely a game where that spread has been shrinking over time. I don't think Michael Lewis will shrink it any further except for the fact that that there's now a bright light shined on these people and they might not be able to even get what little they get now. This same process has been going on for as long as there's been stock trading. (laughs) And it used to be done voice to voice. Now it's done computer to computer. But it used to be done in eighths. So right now you're talking about hundredths of basis points, 0.0000001 is the spread between what these high-frequency traders get the stock at before the rest of the investment community. And it used to be that they got the same spread. They used to get the same thing, but their spread used to be between 12.5 cents. And even before something called May Day, it was actually 50 cents. So you're talking about all, you know, it's actually disrupted an entire industry way before Michael Lewis wrote about this, which is when I was at Goldman, there used to be floors dedicated to these types of traders who took advantage of these sort of situations as the market has gotten more sophisticated, as the as the trading has gotten down to, you know, being able to buy things in pennies instead of in eighths and in quarters. It actually has made that entire industry go away and they've all looked for new jobs. You know, where they should have done is redirected their career to figuring out, you know, to going back and getting, you know, engineering degrees and being coders because that's where their jobs went to. But this is this is not new news. This is not exposure in any way other than to somebody who really has just never seen, you know, ne- never seen the inner workings on Wall Street. Well, sometimes that's what it takes to get uh, action to happen. So I think that no matter what, whether he's right or wrong, there's no question that there is a bright shining light on this industry now. Yeah. And you'll definitely see regulation and some lawsuits and and I bet it won't be the same industry a year after the publication of this book. It won't be, but it would be a shame if that's all that comes out of it instead of it being a message to individual investors, which is you don't make money trading. You make money waiting, right? And holding that stock and whether it's down to, you know, that final last little extra spread that somebody else gets on it, it's not the way to make money in this world. It's not the way to preserve and grow well. You know, it's fine. I, I don't see it that way at all. I prefer to think that because of this, that that I feel like the fault here is if I have my my 401k at Fidelity mm-hmm. or in Schwab or whatever these the mutual funds are, and they are not involved in this game, if they are not faster than the fastest high frequency traders, I feel like I'm getting ripped off. And and as you said, my I'm mad at Fidelity yeah. and I'm mad at Vanguard and I'm mad at all those guys if they're not the ones who are winning this game. Yeah, I, I direct your anger to other places. I'm furious. <laughs> I'm out of here. 
<laughs> and we will try to get to a better mood when Jane Friedman joins Possibly. us here momentarily. We'll be right back on Breaking the Mold. Grow your business by crafting a distinctive audio experience for your established and future clientele, produced by The Hangar Studios. Hangar Studios professionally produces audio products, including radio shows, podcasts, and audiobooks. Your business will take off with a professional audio production from The Hangar Studios. Be heard. Speak freely. Find us at thehangarstudios.com. You're listening to Breaking the Mold. You can follow us on Twitter at BTM Show, or you can email us at btmshow at icloud.com. Now, more of Breaking the Mold. Hello, and welcome back to Breaking the Mold. Dan and I are very fortunate here to be joined by Jane Friedman. Jane is a longtime friend and colleague. For those that don't know Jane, let me walk through a little bit of her history. I will truncate it because we could be here for the next half hour if I actually went into all of those those gory details. Um, Jane uh, started um, her career um, from an education standpoint anyway at uh, NYU as a uh, as an English major. She moved on to uh, executive positions at Random House. Um, she was recruited from Random House to be the CEO of HarperCollins. Uh, and HarperCollins, uh, after her 10-year career, was the fourth largest publishing house in the world. During those 10 years, challenging times for the industry, but Jane doubled their profits, finally saw the entrepreneurial light, and then started her uh, her own business, um, which we will get into, called Open Road Integrated Media. Uh, among all those other accolades, just Jane has also been featured in numerous different reports. She was New York Post, one of 50s Most Powerful Women in New York. She was appointed Publisher Weekly's Person of the Year. She's been on Vanity Fair's list of 200 women legends, leaders, and trailblazers. She's been in Entertainment Weekly. I'll stop there. Okay. <laughs> you. You're starting to get uncomfortable. So, Jane, thank you very much for being, being on the show. Delighted to be here. Okay, Jane. So, we want to hear the early days. We want to hear what it was like. Have you always been kind of a bookworm and reading? No. I really was not a bookworm. Um, and at NYU, I, I was an English major, but I really thought I was going to be a journalist. Um, and I studied under a man called Sidney Town who was a legendary professor of journalism at NYU, and he very quickly um, told me that I was not going to be a journalist. <laughs> uh, he was very nice about it, but he said those questions of who, what, when, where, and how um, were not part of my vernacular. I just couldn't get a story out. I could, I could tell a narrative, but I wasn't going to be a journalist. But I was always interested in, in books and literature and authors, but I was also interested in business. I didn't even know it then, except that by the time I was graduating from NYU, the summer I graduated, I actually worked at Value Line Securities. Mm. And I thought I was always good at math. And it was just one of those happenstances that I was good in math. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm good in math and I like money, I can go to Wall Street. I mean, it was all a little discombobulated at the age of 20, I guess 20 or 21. And I worked at Value Line Securities for the summer, and I hated it so much. I thought, 
this is really awful. I mean, I thought working there, I was going to be finding stocks that I was going to invest in and they were going to go from 10 to 150. You know, I, I had a whole dream of what that was like. So I left there and I walked into the then personnel department at Random House. I mean, I know now it's all HR, but those days it was personnel. And I said, I really want to work in publishing. And I was told, okay, you can have a job right now. And I said, what is that job? I'm so excited. And the personnel director said, you can be a dictaphone typist. Now, there are going to be people who are listening to this who have never heard the term dictaphone typist. And I was typing these words into contracts. I was going in in the morning. I was plugging in. And I was a dictaphone typist. Um, I realized very quickly that uh, that that was not what I wanted to be, that I wanted to be in publicity. But I didn't know what publicity was in publishing. I just thought it sounded cool. So I applied for a job as a publicity secretary at the distinguished house of Alfred A. Knopf. And it really is the number one publishing company in the world mm -hmm. and still is. And I met this very attractive man who walked around with a kind of Marlboro cigarette hanging out of his mouth, looking like Albert Camus, who was one of the Knopf authors. So I'm in heaven. And after we spoke for about 10 minutes, he said, you have the job. And I said, don't you want to um, interview anybody else? He said, you're the 21st interview. Wow. This is for a secretary, a publicity secretary. So I said, OK, that's great. But I have to tell you that I won't be a secretary for long. I said, and I will take this job if in three months you make me a publicity assistant. And he said, it's a deal. And I walked into Knopf the next day, and I talk about Knopf in this way, and it is completely real. Here is this 21-year-old starry-eyed girl. On my, at my left hand is John Updike. At my right hand is John Cheever. Standing above me is Michael Crichton. Julia Child is in a corner. Joe Heller is coming down the staircase. I mean, it was a candy store hmm. of literature. And it's like, I like to say that my children grew up thinking of authors as movie stars. Right. Those were their movie stars. And my life was just full and is full today of those movie stars. So when did they become movie stars for you? Well, they became, I obviously, if you're an English major in school, I've re I read all these people. So they were, they were the talent. I don't even know if we called them the talent, but they were obviously different than the workers. I mean, they were the ones who were turning out the book. But they didn't know what I was doing because I didn't know what I was doing. There was no such thing as publicity. There was a publicity department, but that meant that the books were reviewed in the New York Times book review. That was the extent, other than the Today Show. And I remember getting a a note, a handwritten note from Alfred Knopf. Um, my name then was Jane Becker, and he wrote Miss Becker on this strawberry-colored stationery that he had. And I had put an author on the Today Show. No one else was doing that. So when I got there, I said, well, that looks like a good thing to do. We'll put authors on the Today Show. And I got this note from him that said, Miss Becker, I watched Alexis Lachine I remember this like it was yesterday. He was a big wine expert. I watched Alexis Lachine on the Today Show this morning 
promoting the book that we've published. How much did you pay for that? And I wrote back and I said, we paid nothing. This is what is called publicity. So that's how it all started. And I am credited in about 1970 with inventing the author tour with Julia Child because I had this idea. I was very fortunate. I had ideas and I was in a place where I was able to implement them. So I said, Julia, this was the beginning of educational television, the forerunner of PBS. And Julia was uh, on the air doing her cooking show in stations around the country. And I said, why don't we go to some of those cities? They all have big newspapers that have color. They all have big department stores, which was where we were selling most of our cookbooks. And they had radio and television shows. Mm. So I said, why don't we go to Chicago? We'll book you into a, a, a Marshall Field and we'll do the radio shows and the television shows and the newspapers. And we'll have you do a cooking demonstration. And the first place we visited was Minneapolis. And I looked out my hotel window at 7.30 in the morning, and there were 1,000 women wow. at the bottom of Dayton's department store waiting to get in to go up to the spinning restaurant where Julia Child was making so mayonnaise. So before this, yeah. the, the authors had been, go, had been going out to, to, to talk about their books, right? Never. Or it was you would state you'd write the book, you'd give it, you, you would expect it to sell itself? You would expect reviews to sell it. Uh -huh. And the New York Times book review had a lock on that. Um, there were a couple of other book sections. The Washington Post had a book section. It no longer does. Uh, the L.A. Times had a book section. They no longer do. But that's all that was expected of the author. Deliver the manuscript. Approve your cover. But we had to do the work. So our work was basically the public the publicist's work was basically in trying to get review coverage. Is part of it too that publicity for something in the arts where the purity of the art form should stand on its own? Does it almost demean it in one in one way? Does it? It doesn't. And I mean, I was a proponent saying it did not demean it. And and I feel and I feel very strongly that the most important thing an author can do is touch his or her public, because you establish that connection, which, of course, is, you know, the, the community, the byword of today. This is back in 1970. But I convinced authors, I just found a tape of a Dick Cavett show where I put John Updike and John Cheever on that show. Dick Cavett did the, I was the publicist that put that together. And you look at that today, and it was an amazing conversation, uninterrupted because it was PBS. And I remember John Cheever saying to me, it's really pretty amazing. I'm getting, I'm getting notes now from readers who not, not only read my book but watched me on that show and felt a connection to me. You speak about it as though you, you know, you're living it right this Absolutely. moment from 1970. Absolutely. So clearly it's something that defines you. Yes. As your career progressed, are there things that you can now kind of draw points from there that led you to take similar kind of risks? I think that I am exactly the same today as I was in 1970 in my beliefs. Um, and I've been able to activate a lot of my – actualize and activate my beliefs. Um, so it started with publicity and then it morphed into marketing, which is a complete amorphous term because what does marketing mean? So I made up that marketing meant publicity, book reviews, 
author interviews and display in bookstores, a kind of integrated advertising campaign. And I used to always say that, and of course it's now, my company is called Open Road Integrated Media. So I've always thought that way. Um, and from so from publicity and author publicity, I really started developing marketing before anybody knew what that was. And what did we do? We did posters for bookstores. But I have never been internal. I've always been external. It was always, how do you get these books in front of the public? But that doesn't feel to me like a path to being a CEO. <laughs> it's it's not in any other industry. Doesn't matter. That's my uniqueness. Now, I'm teasing you. But it's true. It's not a path to CEO-dom. I mean, I I have no path to CEO-dom. I don't like MBAs and wouldn't let any of them work for me. I don't believe in consultants. And until I got to Harper, I never had a consultant that worked with me. I don't have an MBA. I have great gut. I have, I've always been interested in the unexpected. I started, for example, in 1985 when I was still running Knopf and the whole group, which was Vintage and Pantheon and a whole group, I started Random House Audio Publishing and invented the audiobooks business for the publishing industry. Because one day, I, somebody approached me in the hall and said, you want to start an audiobooks business? And I said, what's that? And he said, you know, books on tape. I said, sure. And I then took it on and I was the founder and president of the first publishers publishing audiobooks business, which is now a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar business and is now downloadable. And I was there when we were, I, I always make a joke. I say I was there when we were doing 8-track. We weren't doing 8-track, but we were doing cassettes and it was well before CDs and now downloadable. So, okay. So is that a path to a CEO? I don't know. Um, I've, Whatever, I, I've been very lucky. I am great with hiring people. I have always had extraordinary staff. So I've always been able to make a profit. I've always been able to mm -hmm. understand the importance of profitability, which is something that is different with startups. And I have to say, that's my least favorite thing about startups mm -hmm. is the fact that growth, 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 you know, and it doesn't matter what the bottom line is until it does. But, you know, I was brought up to make profit. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what the path is to CEO-dom. I certainly was, I was the first global female CEO in the industry, in the world, when I took over at Harper. Um, and I think Rupert Murdoch took a real chance because I was not the traditional yeah. CEO kind of person. And just to clarify, HarperCollins is the book publishing arm of News Corp. Of News Corp, that's Corp. right. So Jane worked for Rupert Murdoch for 10 years. 11. 11. Just under 11. <laughs> we count every minute. Um, but he took a chance because on my resume, wait, you know, she invented the author tour People like her, you know, blah, blah, blah. The company's profitable. But, you know, Knopf could be profitable if a gorilla was running the company, hmm. which isn't exactly true. But, you know, so – but I think that taking this path rather than the path of business school – I always say, don't you bring a spreadsheet into my office. But anyway, the thing <laughs> is that – because I know – I know – my first boss at Knopf, I've only, I only had three bosses there. First, Alfred, but he was already close to retirement. Bob Gottlieb, who's a genius. And Bob would say, we don't have to do P&Ls. 
I know what a book's going to earn. And the truth is, that's how I was brought up. I knew in my head what a book could be priced at, what the public would pay for it. Hmm. I knew how, what it had to look like. I knew what the return would be. And I knew if it would be profitable. When you became the, the, the CEO, is this something that you were lobbying for? Were you, did, were you talking to Rupert constantly? Did it come out of the blue? How did it happen? Completely out of the blue. Um, I was not on the list of call people for jobs because I always said I would never go. And the next thing I know, I get a call from Rupert Murdoch asking me to fly to California and to meet with him and Peter Chernin, the then president of, of uh, News Corp, in the commissary on the Fox lot. You know, a little bedazzled, a little bedazzled, not the norm I normal, you know, first class flight out to L.A., car and driver into the commissary with everybody coming out. And actually, the first thing that I said to Rupert Murdoch was, do you read? Hmm. Um, and I – because understanding that I didn't want this job. So when you don't want something – You're much more likely to get it. Yeah, but you're also much more likely to say anything, anything. you feel. Sure. I mean, I wasn't rude. I was very polite. But I asked him if he read and I asked him what he liked to read and, and you know, what kinds of books he thought the company should be publishing. And Do you remember what his answers were? He read, he read a lot. He read oh. a lot. I don't remember exactly the books, but he read a lot. He read all the hmm. time. Um, more nonfiction than fiction, but he read a lot. And I remember saying to him, you know, I, I, you and I have very different politics. And, you know, a publishing company is really uh, – uh, should be very diverse – and should publish, in my opinion, my publishing company would have to publish things from all sides. And he said, I get it, you know, and, and we had a very nice conversation. And by the time I got back to New York, because I flew right back, he had called Anthea and he said, I want her for this job. Oh. And I, it took me about a month, not with talking to them, but with talking to myself and my then partner about how could I turn it down, but how could I do it? I didn't want to leave the Knopf Publishing Group and Random House. I would have never left there. It was, it was a dream. It was a dream company for me. Anything I wanted to do, I did. If I wanted to start something new, I started it. If I wanted to, it was just, it was the best job. But I realized my children were grown, <clears throat> sort of sort of grown, um, and that if I didn't take this job, what Lorraine, this very smart headhunter, said to me was, just think about how you'll feel when you open the New York Times and you see who got the job. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I'll probably feel bad, but I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can do it. And it literally was the hardest decision of my life. And did you ever have regrets? Never. But once I took it, I knew, I mean, I rationalized. I thought, okay, if I take this, if I turn the company around because the company was bleeding, I'll be a genius. If I don't turn the company around and I fail, I can blame it on the marketplace and that I came to a company that was unturnaroundable. So I took the job and I started in November of 97. And ironically, in March of 98, my random house was sold to Bertelsmann. 
Hmm. I never thought that would happen. Hmm. And um, my life would have changed at Random House. So it was a move that was incredible timing after. And as I like to say, I became an overnight success. It just took 30 years. <laughs> so let's let's go through the, 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 the path is basically working your way up, becoming incredibly comfortable, incredibly successful, then starting over at but at a large company and becoming even larger and then running everything and then startup land. There must have been a million places you could have gone in corporate America. What led you to starting uh, starting from the very bottom and creating something of your own? Okay. Well, it's very interesting because there, there, when I left um, Random House, there was the big six. It's now the big five because Random House and Penguin have merged. But there were big six companies. So I had been the global CEO of one, and I had been the head of the jewel in the crown of another. So I had essentially had two out of the six so I was not going to be the CEO of another publishing company. Um, there would have been no advantage to it whatsoever. I had worked at the best, so why would I work somewhere that wasn't the best but just one of the big ones? Rupert and I came to a parting of the ways a few months before my contract was up. And that was in June of 2008. August 2008, everything collapsed. So second time in my life of excellent timing. Um, and at that point, I was sort of obsessed with digital. But I was also obsessed with documentary films. And I was trying to figure out how to get, because I had brought into HarperCollins, not a documentary film producer, but a film producer, because I always thought CEO. Publishers never retain the dramatic rights to books. That goes back to the 20s. And I said, if I have a real producer here, somebody who has, a, has real credibility, perhaps we can get the rights. So I had a producer there who was what became the co-founder of Open Road with me. Um, so I was obsessed with trying to figure out how to, how to work in the digital space with books and also how to work in the digital space with film. And trying to figure out whether anybody could do what I wanted to do, which was not to be in a frontless business, which is what traditional publishing is. I, did, I put together a business model that was the antithesis of a publishing business model. Again, CEO, mm -hmm. no advances, no print, no returnability, all the things that you had to deal with in traditional publishing. And Open Road was born. And it was really born in two ways. One, I went to Washington to visit my son, Bradley, who was at Georgetown Law School. And I wanted him to read Sophie's Choice. And I went to every bookstore in Washington, and there was no Sophie's Choice. Now, I had published Sophie's Choice in paperback. I knew that we were doing 100,000 copies a year 15 years before. And I knew that if, they were, if there were no copies of Sophie's Choice in the great independent bookstores in Washington, D.C., that the company must have been doing a very small amount of sales. And I knew that the Styron books did not have e-rights in their contracts and that they were retained by the estate, the family. Also, my partner had optioned 
the movie rights to Lie Down in Darkness before he had ever come to be my partner. So we started Open Road because there were no Sophie's Choices Mm. in Washington, (laughs) D.C., and Jeff Sharp had the rights to Lie Down in Darkness, which we still have and which we are casting now. And, of course, we've had enormous success. So that experience is, I think, classic entrepreneurial, right? You recognized a gap in the market. You recognized that you were going to be able to kind of fill that with, you know, your own moxie and expertise. What's unusual is that that came to you after 40 years in the business. (laughs) Right. Don't say that. People are listening to me and they think that I'm 28. (laughs) You are 28. The the math doesn't exactly (laughs) work out. No, no, but you're absolutely right. Of course, but my brain is not the brain of somebody who has been indoctrinated in certain in one way mm. for a long period of time. Um, I've always been – I once read a study about successful women and what they said was the most important trait and it's curiosity. And I've always been curious. I have not always been risk averse, I have to tell you. I mean I, I, I didn't always take a lot of risks. Um, but all of a sudden, at this point in my life, I know what I know. I know what I don't know, which is also a great thing because most people don't know what they don't know. And, you know, it's in, and I knew that when I went out to start Open Road and I needed funding, that I was not going to get investors who wanted me to be a tech company. Mm-hmm. I wanted investors who believed in a content company that would use technology. And I got them. And it was an interesting – It was that was really interesting. I had never raised money. I didn't even know what a deck was. I mean, I worked for Random House and Harper. Do you wish you'd started this earlier? No, I probably wasn't ready. I probably wasn't ready. I mean, maybe five years earlier, but not 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have traded the experience of – Working for Rupert, working for Kanaf, going through yeah. that process of, you know, one stair step in a limitless staircase at a time, you were— That's how I liked it. That's how you liked it. It was incremental. Yeah. And that's what I try to teach everybody who works with me now is, you know, it's the step up. Mm-hmm. It's the step up. Learn. Take everything you have. Discard what you don't need, but virtually you probably need everything. <laughs> and then, and and you know, anyone can do it. And you can, and anyone can do it. I am not a genius. I am not the most creative, most innovative person you've ever met. But I'm a quick study, and I, I and I also. And I, if I believe in something, I'm like a dog with a bone. It feels like you're underselling yourself because among those qualities, you also had the obstacle of being a woman in a man's industry. Mm-hmm. What was that like? And did you do you feel like you broke barriers? Is that a source of pride for you that not only did you achieve these things, but you achieved them as a woman over, you know, an, a number of hurdles that men wouldn't have faced. And in the startup world, it still is true. Raising oh. money and being a tech or content oh. startup, you're still in the vast minority. Oh, I certainly am. And that's even more interesting now. You know, I never thought about it. I never thought about could I do it I, as a woman? Could I mean... 
I was brought up with a lot of confidence, um, and I think it all starts with that. My parents basically said to me, you can do anything you want to do. That's it. You can do anything you want to do. And I believed it. So, you know, some parents say it and the kids don't believe it. I believed it. When I started out, it never entered my mind that I was a girl. I just was going to be in publishing and whatever that meant. And I was sort of ghettoized because publicity was a girl's part of the business. Mm -hmm. But so was editorial. But business was not. You know, no one – there were no women in business. There were no women in accounting. There was no – there were no women in any of those. But I never I, – it never – I just never paused to think about it. It never – I don't feel that I was prejudiced against Maybe I was just lucky. Maybe I was blind. I know that I, there was, at the beginning of my career, there was a man who I should have eclipsed and didn't because I didn't want to do it. So I, just, I had the company basically split in half so that we could share because I didn't want to eclipse him. I don't know if women would do that today. I felt, I felt an allegiance to him. Um, but from that point on... I just I just did my job. Um, now, interestingly enough, when I got to Harper, almost all the executives at Harper were women. I hired a CEO in London who was a woman. Um, my president of Children's was a woman. My publisher of Harper was a woman. And I, some of them were there. Some of them I hired. But Harper began to be known as a company that was run by women. And I didn't like that. I liked the idea that women were running the company. I liked the idea that the pe best people for running the company were running the company. They just happened to have been women. I wasn't looking for women. So I just, I mean, I thought you were going to say something about, you know, the world, the work-life balance with children and all of that stuff because that's a little bit more complicated. Yeah. And those are trade-offs that one has to, um, has to take a chance on. Mm -hmm. But I have great, fabulous children who are successful, who are fathers now, who are, I mean, you know, they tease me that I missed some birthdays. But I tried not to miss anything that was significant. And what about in startup land? Talk a little bit about that. It's wild. Um, I mean, the, one of the wildest things was that I, a couple of years ago, I got the, um, uh, I got a fortune, a fortune entrepreneur of the year award. Uh, they have a female entrepreneurs of the year and ten people. And when I went out to accept it, uh, and it was really funny because, of course, I was never in the Fortune fifty because, or the Fortune hundred, whatever it is, because you had to run a company that was. My company was a billion and a half. You really had to run a company that was two billion or more. And so a lot of my friends and my colleagues had gotten that fortune and and and, and everybody knew I was pretty annoyed and not getting that. So when I got the but when I had got to wait to be an entrepreneur. Yes, but when I was an entrepreneur. And so I go out to the conference and of course the other nine women are younger than my children. And it felt Great. That was a really great, great moment. So what about it now? It's, I must say, it is really hard. Um, when I got to Harper and Harper was doing the 600 and bleeding and I took it to where I took it, it was not hard. I mean, it was 
one foot in front of the other. You had to have some luck, which luck is very important. But basically, I knew what had to be done there, and I knew that the bones were good and it was going to work. When you start from zero, man, that is another whole game. And I had no idea. I had no idea. So I think our concept is very sound. We have very – our model and our business model is sound. We have done very well. I'm learning a lot, which is what I like more than anything. I am learning something every single day. And I find that throughout my career in publishing, when I could really bluff on anything – I mean, and you'd think that I knew it all. It's not so easy to do this now because I find that sometimes I'll say something and it's completely wrong. And, you know, like I know it as I'm saying it <laughs> and someone is trying to be polite and not say, you know, Jane, that's, um, you know, that's that's not agile. You know, I mean, I, so it's it's funny that um, I'm learning and I think that that's what's really um, what's great. It's hard. What's hard is when you are the boss of a traditional company. You really are the boss. Um, I haven't really talked about this before. It's funny. You are really the boss. Everybody knows you're the boss and everybody gives you a little, they give you respect and they, and they, and you can get away with things. Mm -hmm. In a startup, it's really not like that. I mean, there are times that I say to some of the people who work with me, you know, I think it's really, first of all, you, you only say work with you. Nobody works for you. And, Sometimes I think, wait a minute, did that person really just say that to me? And it's not that it's ever bad, but it's sometimes sometimes it's astonishing to me. And that's so that's a big yeah. that's a big adjustment. Just being just being challenged in that way. Right. And again, back back to the fact that you're not a traditional Silicon Valley tech entrepreneur who sort of has always, you know, it, it, in that classic way, it's somebody who's in their 20s or their 30s who's, you know, a college dropout or, you know, well-educated, but they they sort of have kind of gotten comfortable. That's the way that a startup dynamic is. You've had to be open in ways of that are completely different than what made you successful up until that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's a, sometimes it's a challenge and sometimes very rarely anymore. But I still will sometimes say when someone says, why should we do that? I will sometimes say because I said uh, I'm so. I'm the boss. Yeah. Right. yeah. I said so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you want this you want this big office and the big bucks. And then I laugh because the office is small and the bucks are not big. Become the CEO. Yeah. But I say that very rarely because yeah. I realize that most – that the people who are – who I've built, this team that I've built, they're really smart. Mm. And they do know things that I don't know. But the truth is that I think that experience does really matter. I don't know what kind of experience, but just even life, living – you know more at 40 than you do at 20. You just know more. And when you're 60, you know even more. Now, there are things you forget at 60. But the fact is that you do know a lot. And I think experience is really important. If we were 
a startup that had nothing to do with publishing, I don't know what kind of experience I would need. But there's no doubt that having the experience of dealing with books, authors, the personality of the authors, the agents, these this is still a business that is based on um, the author. And to have a grown-up deal with an author is sometimes advantageous. Jane Freeman, we here at Breaking the Mold appreciate you sharing all of your experience with us. Great time. Thank you for having me. Breaking the Mold wants your feedback. Please visit our iTunes show page and tell us what you think about the show. Now, back to your hosts. We are back at Breaking the Mold, having had a fascinating conversation with Jane Friedman. Dan, what did you think? Uh, I thought it was, I thought the entire interview was incredibly interesting. What really uh, I thought was amazing was what a different kind of startup CEO she is. And mm-hmm. everything that you read and you hear about, and you can even see these startup CEOs who are a certain breed. They are a certain sex. They're usually men. They are under 35, usually under 30 even. And they are growing these companies with people like them. And here you have Jane Friedman, who is not like that at all. She's had an incredibly successful career. She could have retired. She starts this company, and she surrounds herself with millennials and startup people who are working incredibly hard. And she has to learn herself how to, how to be in that role. And she is learning how to not do command and control, how to listen to people around her, how to, and how to grow something. Frankly, I don't know if I was, after achieving the success that she's had, could have suddenly gone into a place where I'm being challenged by 20-somethings who have nowhere near the level of kind of knowledge and experience about the... This is an industry she knows. She didn't switch industries. She is considered in the publishing world as really a, a legend. And now she's being pushed around by people who have 40 years less experience. And she likes it. She's, you know, she's, she's energized by it. I, I, like, part of me as she was thinking, as she was talking, I was like, well... Why aren't there more people like her? You just don't hear it. And it's too bad. She's probably running a, a startup business that's got a higher probability of success than somebody who is the profile that you described. It's too bad more people aren't doing it like yeah. that. I think the world would be a better place well, if we had her Part of it like is that. that you have to have the people who have the money and are willing to fund uh, to, to, to not do the pattern matching, which is what I described originally. And you say yeah. someone's got to look like Mark Zuckerberg to be successful and to say that anyone can be successful, that there are people who are – we, we are willing to take a, a risk on – I mean, she's barely a risk. She's someone who's yeah, had incredible right. success, and yet she is considered a risk in, in you know, VC land. She would not do well, as she said, going and talking to the soft banks and the traditional VCs. Um, and I think there's just got to be a, a – it's great to hear there are people who are saying, I'm willing to fund something that looks a little bit different than what most, most people expect. Yeah, but they under they undervalue experience. Absolutely. And so the investors overvalue the last success. So they look at Evan Williams at Twitter and they look at you know Mark Zuckerberg as, okay, well, that's what uh, the path to a lot of money looks like, not Jane Friedman. Right. So it starts at the root. It Absolutely. starts at where the money is. So if you can self-fund a business. That's the key. Yeah. Uh, so for Dan Roth, I am Evan Roth, and we thank you for tuning in to Breaking the Mold. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh. It's business. It's business. You've 
been listening to Breaking the Mold. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at BTM Show, through email at btmshow at icloud.com, and at our iTunes show page. Breaking the Mold is recorded at the Hangar Studios in New York City.